Okay, uh, welcome my guests to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. My name is Nosa Yari, and today I'm here again with Mr. Daryl Davis. Uh, I'm actually in D.C. for a few days, and given that I had Daryl on the podcast a few weeks ago, I decided to reach out to him, and gracefully enough, uh, he is hosting me currently in his house, so I appreciate that, Daryl. Hey, thank you for coming. I appreciate your visit. Yeah, sure, sure. It's been a long time since I did a person-to-person interview. Like, it... uh, probably, <laughs> it's been a long time since I did a gig. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the coronavirus, a lot of people are, like, recording remotely, but, you know, the cities are starting to open up now, and, you know, even getting here, everyone is, like, shops are starting to open, barbershops are starting to open, the metro is open, so I guess things are slowly returning to normal. I mean, we even have conspiracy theories out there that said coronavirus never existed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and we also have theories, which I do believe are true, that, you know, there's going to be a spike again. There and, is uh, going to be a I spike. I think we're seeing it in some states mm-hmm. as a result of a lot of the crowd gathering. Yeah. But supposedly it's going to mutate and, and return, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can blame, like, the protests. Uh, obviously, uh, not a lot of people thinking about social distancing uh, because of the state of things right now. And, you know, with uh, the injustice from the police. Uh, I mean, I was just watching a video this morning before I came here. And uh, one of the officers um, that were that was present during George Floyd's uh, technically assassination, uh, he was released, I think, on a $750,000 bond. So he was released, I think, yesterday or something. And he was out grocery shopping in Minnesota. He just went to a grocery store getting some milk and some other things, and this lady kind of, like, approached him, you know, kind of like she was recording him and saying, hey, you know, you don't deserve to be here, you're a killer, you know, why are you not in prison, you know, and, you know, he was just, it was kind of like, he, he when she first asked, like, what's your name, aren't you that cop? He was like, yeah, that's me, you know, kind of thing, so he was, like, a little cocky in that sense, but, you know, over the course of, like, the recording, like, he was, he looked a little remorseful, I don't know if he was remorseful, but, there was this interesting argument online that, hey, you know what, the law is handling it, it's out on the $750 bill, he's still going to be charged and his court date is going to be set, let the law take its, you know, hold. But some people are saying that, you know, George Floyd isn't here, he's in a live to grocery shop. And, you know, if you're one of the people who you are not that cop that put your knee on his neck, like you prevented, you didn't prevent it from happening. So in that sense, you shouldn't know peace because you are an accessory to murder. Well, I mean, he was definitely aiding and abetting, and he was complicit uh, in in what I would call a lynching of uh, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, uh, you know, there does not need to be any kind of uh, vigilante justice. Uh, You know, we should let the law take its course Mm -hmm. and and hope that uh, justice, you know, is truly blindfolded. Um, And uh, he should get what, you know, what's coming to him. He definitely wasn't, it was uh, complicit. In in this uh, in this lynching of George Floyd, we we all had that on camera. We we watched it, and um, you know he should be uh, be judged and penalized accordingly. Yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, like she didn't like accost him or assault him or anything. She was just like recording him, like you know, obviously you know, saying some harsh things to him, you know, ex- exercising I guess her First Amendment or whatever. Uh, but that's just besides the point. Uh, nothing, nothing she she could say to him. Uh, I mean, in this country, we do have freedom of speech, whether we like it or not, and whether I mean whether we like the speech or not. But there's nothing that woman could have said 
uh, harsher to him than what happened to George Floyd. True, true, true. I mean, you know, interesting times. You know, I really hope um, whatever uh, we're doing, you know, as a race and, you know, as a people can really cause lasting change. Because a lot of times in the past, you see things like this happen and it'll just be lip service, you know, uh, a few a few memorials here and there, and it's like back to status quo. So hopefully now, what I think is different from this time, I think, you know, more and more people are starting to identify or are starting to 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 acknowledge that there is a broken system that, you know, um, oppresses like Black people in America. So I guess that's like a positive that's coming out of all of them. Oh, definitely. I mean, more people who look like the people that we're trying to, to reach through our protests are joining us in our protests now. And and that is a massive change uh, since the days of the civil rights movement. I mean, as I perhaps had said on the previous uh, episode that we've always had white people who marched with us, mm. but nothing like the numbers today. And I think this collective is what's, is what's causing our voices to be heard, this collective of people. Because now the people who, who were the oppressors are still the oppressors. They're looking at these protests and they're seeing not just black people, they're seeing people who look just like them. Mm -hmm. And so now they're like pulling out their earplugs or putting in their hearing aids, whichever the case may be, <laughs> and, and listening to, to what's going on. And uh, I do think that this change will be one that is sustained because of that collective now. And this is a, is a historical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that aside, though, you know, this is more or less like a follow-up conversation to the interview we did a couple of weeks ago, obviously, uh, with you um, and your activities, you know, with, with clans people, like, you know, getting people to surrender, you know, their robes and things like that. You know, ever since I dropped that interview, like, two, three weeks ago, it's been, you know, pretty interesting uh, when I published that interview, because this is not the first time you're obviously, you know, sharing your story you have with other platforms, but maybe some of my audience hasn't, you know, gotten to realize it. It was kind of like Mick, and it gave me a sense of what you might have gone through, like, personally, because not everyone was with it, to be honest. Sure, like, absolutely. Not everyone, like, had the... You know, I, I maybe had the patience to like listen to like an almost two hour interview that we had that day. Some people just from the cover art and just seeing and reading the show description just jumped to a conclusion like, who is this guy? You know, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Right. And, and I was thinking about like, wow, this is just me publishing this like as a as a podcast as an interview. I, I imagine what Daryl is going through. <laughs> <laughs> because well, you you're supporting a race traitor. Hmm. You're supporting somebody who has. You know, sitting down with the enemy. Yeah. You know, uh, I've been called Uncle Tom. I've been called an Oreo. I've been called Uncle Ruckus. I've been called a registrator. I've been called practically every name but my own. Mm. But you know what? Um, people are changing through me. I, yeah. I don't say that I'm the one who converted them, but I have. I've been the impetus for their conversion. You know, these conversations have led to them to think about the path they're taking. And not all of them, you know, no, not every racist is going to change. Yeah. You know, there'll be those who go to their grave being hateful and violent. And that goes on all sides, on all races. Yeah. Um, but many of those that, that I've talked to have put thought into this. And I've ended up with their robes and hoods. I even have some of them come out on tour with me. And they speak out with me on stage against their former organization and, uh, and against white supremacy. So that shows an impact. Uh, you know, people say, you know, I'm wasting my time doing this one at a time. 
You know, I need to be fighting the systemic thing. Well, you know what? Um, the system needs to be fought, absolutely. But who's behind the system? Individuals. Yeah. The system does not operate on its own. Yeah. So, you know, if if somebody that I'm talking to uh, gains a new perspective, then they're going to implement that new perspective in the system in which they work. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, it, you know, there's no one way to, to, to cure racism. I do my part. Somebody working on the system does their part. Somebody working on the le- on the legislation and legal areas of it, making certain laws uh, change or, or, or add new laws, they work on that part. We all have to work together and coordinate and cooperate with one another rather than, than uh, sit around and insult each other for what we're doing. Most definitely. I definitely agree. You know, I, I guess it's sign of the times. Like in my generation, I can say, particularly maybe uh, in the social media generation, like a lot of people take a lot of things at face value. So not a, little, a lot of people actually take the time to go deeper, to find out, to cross-reference, to see what's been, you know, talk, we call it the headline, the, the, the headline phenomenon, right? You just see a headline on Twitter. Oh, uh, I don't know, XXX murders a cat and you don't bother to read the story it's just like oh this person murdered a cat even though it might be clickbait even though it might like sensationalism is just in this information age it's just people go off headlines and you have people like losing careers over headlines Uh, i think the most uh shocking kind of example of that i've seen is i think a couple of years ago i want to say four or five years ago i kind of like this happened four or five years ago, but I got to know about it recently where a Google Sheet, like the link to a Google Sheet was put on Twitter. I want to say Twitter or somewhere on social media where people were free to add anyone who had been a sexual harasser, like in the past. No research to it, no, you know, background information. So, could be slander or libel, yeah? so people just went up there and like typed in names, like, and some of them were true. Right. It it definitely exposed a lot of people who were, you know, predatory and, you know, uh, on women and things like that. But some names, there was no real truth to it. Because when a journalist got a hold of that list and was trying to prove the names, okay, what did this person do? What that person do? Some of the names, they couldn't really get, like, a sense of, okay, what exactly did this person do? When did it happen? What, you know, that kind of thing. So, but it's just an example of what's going on in our age. And some people have, have the argument that, look, there has to be casualty in war, right? If they're fighting a war, of course, some innocent people might die. You know, it's for the greater good at the end of the day. But it's just scary to know the world we're living in that, hey, maybe uh, something you did or did not do or who you associated with or what you said or whatever it can come back to haunt you 20 years. This is just crazy. But let's talk about other stuff. I want to talk a lot about your time in Africa. So we're talking before the podcast uh, about your a particular incident that happened uh, with your mom in, in uh, Ghana, and uh, I don't know how much of that sh- story you, you want to share, but I found it pretty interesting because we, we use that to also talk about the role of like what we consider like traditional, maybe African medicine, and how we can use that, just like how you know Asian medicine is beginning to gain a foothold on the society. But did you want to like share bits and pieces of that story real quick? You're talking about, about the, uh, the, the lost watch? Correct, the lost watch. Sure, absolutely. Uh, because I think, you know, uh, many, you know, I, I don't I don't generally share that story with a lot of Americans. Uh, it's not something that they're familiar with and they would, would find it hard to grasp or, or consider it unbelievable. You know, and I've been 
told I've made it up or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, anyway, uh, the story is uh, we were overseas in, in Africa, in Ghana, and um, the, the American embassy, you know, provides, my, my dad worked for the American embassy, and uh, they provide um, domestic workers, uh, you know, for the household. So we had a cook, we had, uh, I had a, a, a maid who babysat me, and well, I was a little too old to be babysat, but, um, you know, who took care of me and things like that. And um, a gardener, a night guard, a day guard, a laundry person, um, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, my mother had put her wristwatch in her, in her dress pocket and put it in the hamper, forgotten to take it out. And next thing you know, all the clothes in the hamper had gone downstairs to the laundry area. And the laundry man would sometimes bring his son and his son's friend assist him in ironing and folding and drying the clothes and all that. So my mom remembered it and rushed down to the laundry room to, to retrieve it. But the watch was nowhere to be found. They looked in the washing machine, looked on the ground, and the, all the other clothes, no watch. So the laundry man was a very honest individual, and he figured, well, if Mrs. Davis had put her watch in the pocket, then that's where it was supposed to be. Um, however, it's not there now, and we cannot find it. Therefore, somebody must have taken the watch. Yeah. And he was very, very concerned about this uh, because you know he knew that he hadn't done it, and you know he didn't think you know any of his uh, his kid or his kid's friend had done it. But he suggested that all the employees get together because he asked all of them, had they seen the watch, just in case it had fallen out of the pocket on the way to laundry or something. They said no. So he suggested that all the employees go to what in this country uh, we would call a, a witch doctor. Mm -hmm. And um, so they all agreed. Now, the, the family, my family, did, uh, did not have to go, but we wanted to go just to learn the culture and, and see how, how this works. And that's a pretty extreme measure for a watch, right? This wasn't like a very expensive No, it wasn't a very expensive watch that I recall, and I don't think it was a... A family heirloom, um, you know, and my mom had other watches, and she could certainly get another watch. But it was the principle for the for the uh, the laundry man, you know. Uh, he 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 wanted to clear his name. Not not that we were accusing him of anything like that, but he was just very concerned because this had, had never happened before. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, he was an honest man and, and wanted you know to do right uh, by the family. So since uh, they could not find the watch there, somebody had taken it and. Um, you know, it needed to be found. So uh, we went along to watch this, uh, this uh, I guess, ritual, you would call it, and um, went to this witch doctor's place, and he had all the employees, except for us, the family, uh, line up in a line, and he had a fishhook. And as you know, a fishhook has uh, serrated blades on it so that it goes in, but when you try to pull it out, it snags. The, the serrated blades catch onto the to the skin of the fish, and that's it. He yeah. cannot let go. Yep. And so that's how you pull him into, into the, uh, up, you know, reel him back in out of the water to where you are. So he had this fish hook on this fish line, and he had everybody stand in a row with their heads tilted back and their mouths open. How many people were there? I remember maybe, I don't know, maybe six or seven, perhaps. Okay. All staff. All staff, correct. Okay. And one by one, he would drop the fish hook down their throat on this line. 
Now, you know that's impossible to drop it in and then pull it back out with, uh, without it catching or snagging with those serrated blades. That's the purpose of the blades. So he would do this, and he would ask them in, in their dialect, uh, have they taken the watch? And while the fish was down their throat, they would shake their head like no and mumble no or whatever, uh, and he would pull the string right out. Wow. And the, str- and the fish will come right out with, without any damage whatsoever to somebody's esophagus or their throat, and which was amazing in and of itself. And he went on down the line. Uh, when he got to the son, the son's friend, rather, um, who, who was there assisting, he asked him the same question, and the boy said no. And he went to, to pull the fish out. It didn't come out. Mm-hmm. It snagged somewhere in his throat. And the worshiper guy said, you know, you took the watch. And when the kid admitted it, he pulled it right out. It came right out. Wow. So how does a fish hook that is already lodged into a piece of skin, snagged, how does it come out? You can't put your hand down somebody's throat and remove it, put, you know, back it up and cover the blades and pull it out smoothly. Mm-hmm. But he just pulled on the string, and it came right out as soon as the boy confessed. And once it came out, he asked the kid, uh, where is the watch? And the kid said it was at his house. He had taken it home. So uh, he told him to go and get it. And the kid took off running, went home, returned 20 minutes or so later with the watch. He gave it to this person, this uh, witch doctor, who then handed it to my mother. And um, he uh, gave my father a little, uh, it looked like cowhide, some kind of, kind of wild animal uh, leather. Uh, still with the fur on it, or some of the fur on it, uh, a little pouch. And I don't know what was in the pouch. I don't think it was important to open, or maybe it said don't open it or whatever. But he told us to hang it on, above the threshold of, of, uh, of the door, uh, of our front door leading into the house. Mm-hmm. Just hang it there, sort of like, you know, like mistletoe at Christmas time or something, mm-hmm. and that it would prevent any evil spirits from entering the house. Now, um, you know, my father took it and thanked him, and you know, I, you know, he hung it on the door. I mean, we wouldn't have any more problems. Perhaps uh, the the pouch worked. I don't know, mm-hmm. or perhaps it was just you know just just that one incident anyway. But so I I don't know if any evil spirits came to the house and couldn't get in or not. I don't have any evidence of that, but I do have evidence that this official this official this this um, I guess man made lie detector, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked, and when I recount this story to uh, to my fellow Americans, a lot of them don't believe it unless they've been to they've been to Africa or been in a situation where that kind of thing is practiced or something similar. You know, then they they have a grasp. Oh yeah, you know that's powerful stuff. Uh, others will try to explain it in a scientific manner. Well, you know, you know when you when you're telling a lie, your muscles contract, they tense up, mm-hmm. and that's probably what happened. That boy's muscles got all tight because he was nervous and locked up on the fish hook. And then when he confessed, his muscles relaxed. Mm-hmm. Well, once a fish hook snags into your skin, you just can't relax it out. Got it. You know, so you, you, they can believe whatever they want to believe. But the important thing is this it worked. Mm-hmm. And this man was able to retrieve my mother's watch. Did he um, ever come around like the, uh, the son's friend? Did he ever come around to the house after that? No. No, no. He stayed um, I mean, not by us, but probably the laundry man probably forbade him or forbade his son to bring any 
any outsider to the house with the compound. Got it, got it. And it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, I'm Nigerian, I'm West African myself, so that's not a total foreign story to me because right. we have, you know, whatever you want to call the witch doctors, native doctors, uh, babalawos, like that's a real thing. Like, you know, people go as far as, uh, in fact, now, like at one time it was like, um, you know, women who wanted to get married or who are married and wanted to keep their man and stop their man from cheating on them who goes to a witch doctor and say, you know, and you see real cases that if my husband goes outside to cheat on me, then the moment he, and not to get too graphic, but just to explain what I'm saying, the moment he, there's penetration, it sticks and you can't pull out. Mm -hmm. And that's a real thing. And a lot of couples have been caught. Like they're, <laughs> they're at home. Like a dog. Yeah. And they stick to each other. Like mm -hmm. the man can't, pull out Bro. once he penetrates and yeah. they have to scream for help and like the neighbors and people like come when they've been there for a couple of hours and you know, they get out and people have to come and some people have to literally break the wall down and carry the bed out and carry I'm telling you man like carry the bed out and carry the bed to the witch doctor's place and say oh, with the people still on the bed with the people still on the bed like look can you like do something so they can separate like It'll be embarrassing, though. People, people have camera phones, so it's a it's a weird scene. Like people have camera phones, which is like science or technology, yeah, in cool, and they have, you know, African science, like some people say, <laughs> like recording mm -hmm. what's happening. You see some of those videos, like you know, happen on the internet. But like you said, you know, if you say some of these things here, uh, some Americans might not necessarily agree. Or how do you want to explain that? For instance, I guess maybe a guy in the college just might want to explain the whole, you know, the walls. That you, you stick and you can't come out or something. But well, we know that happens with dogs. Mm -hmm. um, but the the female dog, after could be a couple hours or something like that, relaxes and releases, mm -hmm. and then the male dog can can withdraw. Um, I, you know, I've seen that happen with dogs where they're stuck you know, for a while. Um, I didn't know that about humans, but I don't I don't doubt that story based upon what I've seen. And I, and I can tell you another story also, and this one took place. In uh, in Senegal, um, my my father's uh, chauffeur, um, his wife was very very ill, so of course we brought her to the American Embassy uh, for the American doctor who treats all of us, and we had the latest and the greatest in uh, in medicine, and he he examined her, he gave her medicine, but he said you no, know, he didn't know what it was she had, but everything he tried on her was not working, it was not effective. Okay. And and she was she was like on her way out to die. Uh, he said, you know, he was sorry. There was nothing he could do. And she was just that far gone. So a, a couple of days later, the chauffeur asked my father uh, if he could have the day off, and would it be possible to take you know the uh, the embassy car? Uh, he wanted to go way out somewhere to to see the, you know this witch doctor uh, who who could possibly have a cure for his wife. So of course my father said, absolutely, you know, you do whatever you need to do, you know, for your wife. Please take the car, you know, go and take your time, do do what has to be done. So me, of course, having seen what happened in Ghana years prior, mm -hmm. uh, I was very fascinated and I wanted to go too. Oh really? So yeah. So I asked the chauffeur if um if I could ride along. Did you ask your parents first? Or... No, I asked the chauffeur first. Okay. And and he said, you know, yes, you can go, but you must ask your parents. So I asked my mom and dad, they said, sure, you know, you can go. 
And so uh, it was a long ride. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm talking about maybe five or six hours or something where we went. And when we got there, there was like a long line of people of people waiting to see this man. Right? And we, we had to get in the line and got in the line. And I remember there being this crippled man who was all bent over. And he was about two or three people ahead of us. He was an old man. And he was all bent over. And um, I, 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 he, you know, he was like deformed, maybe a curvature of the spine or something. I don't know what it was. But he, he, he walked very slowly and all bent over. Anyway, um, you know, we waited. I, I can't even remember how long we waited, but I know it was well over an hour. And uh, finally, the, the man ahead of us, uh, the crippled guy, it was his turn, and uh, he described what his symptoms were or whatever, and he gave this guy, uh, I, I don't know what he gave, but he gave him something. It wasn't money. It's, I guess it's some kind of trade or barter system or something that he gave this guy. And the witch doctor said some things, and I touched the guy. Then he went into his bag, and he pulled out some stuff and gave this guy, had him eat it. This man started turning cartwheels right in front of me. Turning cartwheels, like he was no longer crippled. Mm. And you know, you, you see this stuff in the movies or or on TV with these fake creatures, where somebody comes in a wheelchair and the creature comes up and puts his hand on his forehead and shoves him and says, "Heal," yeah. you know, and the guy gets up and walks. Yeah. And, and a lot of that is fake. We see on TV, but I saw this with my own eyes. This guy was all bent over, started turning cartwheels. How old were you? I was. I was 12 or just turned 13. Got it. All right. And um, so then it was our turn. And uh, the chauffeur spoke to this witch doctor in their, di in their dialect and described his wife's symptoms and gave him some money. And uh, the witch doctor pulled out, some, he had like two bags, one on either side of him, pulls him out from this bag, pulls out that bag, and gave the chauffeur some instructions. Now, I did recognize uh, something uh, that he pulled out that I've seen and I have also had at my house, these uh, cola nuts that mm. came from the cola tree. Yeah, that's a popular. Yeah, so, yeah. so there were those things. They were brown with a white stripe on them or something. Mm -hmm. And um, those and some other stuff that I did not recognize and uh, explained to the chauffeur in their dialect, which I didn't understand, how he was to administer this to his wife. So then we left, made that long drive back. And um, I got dropped off, and then the chauffeur, uh, you know, uh, went went on home. And the next day, he brought his wife to our doctor, and she was completely healed. In one day. Overnight. And the doctor was like, he almost fainted. It was, like, incredulous. Like, this woman should not even be. The doctor was American? American doctor with the latest and greatest medicine. Mm. Right? This woman was healed. She shouldn't even have been walking. You know, she'd been bedridden such as the times that she was carried into the doctor's office. Um, she, and, and there was no trace of any, of any illness. So, you know, the, these, you know, there's so much about foreign culture that we don't know and that we refuse to learn or acknowledge. And that is to our own detriment. Uh, as I have said many times, you know, it wasn't until recently, within the last 20 years or so, uh, 25 years, perhaps, that um, insurance companies, you know, have started paying for acupuncture. You mean before. in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, before that, you know, they would think, oh, you know, that's just, you know, uh, old wives' tale or some, some, you know, uh, uh, nothing true, psychosomatic kind of stuff. And, uh, well, you know what? The Chinese people have been using acupuncture for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, why would they still be using it 2,000 years later if it wasn't working? So obviously there's something to it, and now the insurance companies realize that, and now they're, pay- and, and now they're paying for it. So perhaps, you know, they, they won't be so, so quick to discount other cultures. Other cultures. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, colonization and, you know, slavery and all these other things that happened in history maybe have something to do with that. Because obviously before, you know, Europeans appeared in Africa, like there, there was a way of doing things. Uh, there's an argument that the first university was in Egypt, which is in Africa, like, oh, all the countries in Africa specialized in one things or one thing or the other. Obviously, people got sick. They had their own technology method of farming. They had the way they went to war. They had all these things. But you know, over time, I guess when Christianity started becoming more and more prevalent, uh, it was. And I'm a Christian, so I guess I can say this: like it, other religions. Let me not say culture, because I like to, uh, you know, differentiate between culture and religion. Mm-hmm. Were seen as evil. You know, I'm a Christian, but you know, I might have a friend that I talked to. I had someone on my podcast, Montague, who practices, you know, like the Ifar religion, which is like an ancient Yoruba, Nigerian religion. So, in as much as I'm Christian and I'm comfortable being Christian, like. I had no problem talking with him and discussing with him and, you know, just sitting there having a conversation. But if I was back home, that probably might not have happened because it's two different worlds. Like, if you're of that world, you shouldn't, like, mingle with people in this other world. You just see, like... Uh, and, and I was saying this because, like, someone like my great-grandfather or, you know, people who were alive, like, 100 years ago, just that point where Europeans were starting to teach Africans, like, Christianity... They were starting to ostracize them from the traditional African religions in these different countries. So you had a lot of villages who were angry. Some of them went after, you know, the priest or you know things like that. Why are you teaching our people who have been practicing this thing for hundreds of years and suddenly telling our children that this is bad? You know, uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I'm not making a case for Christianity, nor am I making a case for um, other religions. I'm just, you know. Buttressing your point that there's something to be learned, you know, from all these different cultures and religions. Because some of this stuff that will go on go in the Western world is borrowed. Like the, the way they, they do a lot of things borrowed from either Native Americans, from Asians. Yoga is a big thing now from India. Right. You know, a, a, lot, a lot of meditation. Things. Meditation. So um, if there's something to be learned that can maybe make the world better. Maybe that's, there's an argument, you know, that maybe maybe that's the way to go. But hey, um, I, I guess documentation is another thing. You know, these are things I passed down by word of mouth from generation to generation. There is no peer review. Right. And I mean, what, what do you have to lose by treating something holistically? Yeah, but, you know, I guess it doesn't fit the narrative of, you know, a of lot science. of people. But that, but that is a precise point. Let's talk about your podcast. I've been listening to your podcast. I've listened to about four episodes now, um, Changing Lives with Daryl Davis. Changing Minds, yeah. I'm sorry, Changing Minds with Daryl Davis. Pretty interesting stuff, like the the people you have on there. Like, how do you how do you know these people? You have, like, former, <laughs> former white supremacists. You have, like, people affiliated 
terrorists and all that. Like, how do you meet these people? Like, well, you know, I've served on panels with uh, various people from all different walks of life, people who committed bombings or, or relatives of people who committed bombings. Um, as you pointed out, some former white supremacists, former Islamic jihadists who worked for al-Qaeda recruiting here in this country, um, Rwandans, uh, genocide survivors, technology experts, psychologists, uh, White House correspondents, just different people, you know, you're here in the Washington, D.C. area, which is a hub for many different walks of life. Sure. So uh, I've met some here, and then they know somebody who's in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or somewhere, or, or even in Europe. And so I will uh, contact those people, or they'll give me the information and have them contact me or whatever. Let me set up um, a date to be interviewed. So it's been very fascinating for me. And also, I have I, I, you know, musicians as well, because that's what I primarily am, a musician. The, the podcasting thing is very, very new to me. So I'm, I'm still an amateur at that. But, uh, I, mean, I don't know I'm if you're having... an amateur. You're in episode 26. Now, most, most podcasts don't go beyond episode 5, I think, 4 or 5. Is that right? That's about it. <laughs> so you're, like, top tier. Like, most of the podcasts, I think the last counts... Uh, I researched was about 780,000 podcasts. I'm sure it's closer to a million because uh-huh. uh, that was like a year ago I, I pulled that number up. But most of that 780,000 podcasts have like five episodes or less. So people just do one, two, three episodes and give up. So the fact that you're episode 20, 26, you're already at like the top 50% of podcasts, right? Well, now. you know, I mean, I, I really enjoy learning. I really do. And uh, everybody has something to say. Everybody has something to teach. And you know, I will be your best student. You know, if you have something interesting to share, yeah. You know, I, I'm I, I'm happy to interview you and and listen and and try to gain something. You know, not just for myself, but I also think you know, how can I take what I've learned from this person and apply it to better somebody else's life or share it with them, and they can better their life and better other people's lives. To me, that's what you know, that's what living is about: trying to help people out and 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 better society. Because, as I've said, you know, in many of my talks, that our society can only become one of two things, that which we want, that which we uh, sit back and watch it become, or that which we stand up and make it become. Yep. So we have to ask ourselves, do I want to sit back and see what my society becomes, or do I want to stand up and make my society become what I want to see? Well, I see. Yeah, so I've chosen the latter. And I can't do it on my own. I mean, I'm not... I'm not a genius. I'm not that smart. So I try to gain as much information as I can with people with different perspectives yep. and put them uh, on, on my platform and share them with the world. And perhaps somebody will be inspired, some minds will be changed uh, you know, for the better. That's also such a hard thing to do nowadays because um, it's so difficult to get people with different perspectives in a room to kind of like have a conversation. It's almost like if you're not like me, then you're automatically you're like ultimately like against me kind right. of thing. So right. us versus them. Us versus no them. No gray, um, gray area. Yeah, and there and there's a purpose for that, you know. And I can understand that in certain sense, like especially you know when it comes to like the racial divide, it's almost like people are fed up in some sense and things like that. But some other parts uh, of life, you know, you, you can't really learn unless you really like settle down, like have a conversation with someone, try to see the person's point of view, try to convey your point of view. And that doesn't necessarily mean 
you guys will end up agreeing, but at least you can agree to disagree and maybe right. you come off at least understanding why that person acts the way he does. And also, you know, you, you're planting seeds and seeds are being planted within. And, you know, no one is necessarily going to, well, I won't say no one, but most people are not going to change overnight. Yep. You know, uh, because they've come to this position over time. So therefore, it's going to take time for them to switch that position. Yeah. You know, it's like putting on weight. You know, you don't wake up 50 pounds heavier the next day. Uh, you know, you, you add those 50 pounds over, over time. Over time. And if you want to lose those 50 pounds, there is no drug, no amount of exercise, nothing you can do that's going to make you wake up the next day 50 pounds lighter. I mean, I guess who your, it depends on who your doctor is, I guess. Huh? It depends on who your doctor is. Well, I mean, <laughs> unless he gives you some kind of gastric bypass, Got it. you know, something like that. But, uh, you know, you're going to have to spend time dieting and exercising. And it, it, may be, it may be months, it may be a year before you lose that 50 pounds, yep. if you're diligent about it. So it's the same thing with ideology. Somebody who, who's immersed in that ideology for years, they're not going to turn it off. It's like a light switch. Mm. You've got to gradually, you know, water that seed, come back and, and provide nutrients for it okay. so that it grows up out of the ground. Maybe, maybe it's just that patience, you know, um, just having that patience to keep at it. Uh, not a lot of people. And like I said, you know, understandably so in some aspects, but I guess that's why we have people on, you know, even like within political parties or within different ideas, you have people who address it differently. Some people go at it like militantly. Some people go at it with education. So people go at it by just living their lives and inspiring other people. Yeah. So it depends on, you know, what works for you. But it speaks to what we were discussing about earlier before we started recording about like education versus schooling. Like my dad always told me one thing, which I'll never forget. Like you always have your parents telling you things when you're kids that you never forget. He says, when you go to school, like I went to boarding school, I went to university. I spent a lot of time in, in school outside my house. So he always told me that don't just pass through school, let school pass through you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, always like seek to learn, you know. So I've always tried to involve myself in extracurriculars. I'm not just that person who went to class, whether I was in high school or, you know, college or even during my master's. Like I tried to do things outside. Like, Let me learn. Oh, am I in a different country? Am I in a different place? Let me learn about that place. It's not just about what you're writing on the chalkboard or on the whiteboard or whatever. And maybe that's what more people need to do to, because when you expose yourself to other things and you have that curiosity and are willing to learn, maybe you have that tolerance for people that have divergent views from you in the long term. Uh, but, you know, we can only say on the podcast what people choose to do in their day-to-day -day life is probably totally up to them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I think, again, yeah, you know, your, your father was right about, you know, don't pass through school, but let school pass through you, because that's, those are the tools that you're going to need when you leave that school. Um, some of the things, though, that the school does not pass on to you uh, you know, they, they want you to work as hard as you can, get the best grades you can. And even if you get straight A's or straight A pluses even, mm -hmm. um, and you are the class valedictorian, mm -hmm. if you are a female or you're a black, that means nothing after you come outside of school. Mm -hmm. Because within the school, you are treated equally. 
You read the same books as all the other kids. Yep. All your teachers treat you the same way they treat everybody else. And, um, you know, you have just an equal chance as anybody of being the lead star in the school play, yep. you know, et cetera. But then when you go outside school, if you graduate, it's you try to get a job, it's a different story. You're not, you're not prepared uh, for the fact that no matter how smart you were in school, you're being judged by your color or yep. that you're being judged by your gender. Even today, women uh, in this country are making 79 cents on a man's dollar for the same amount of work, yep. you know? And unfortunately, the schools don't tell them. By the way, uh, when you graduate, um, people are going to look at the color of your skin and you may not get the right job yeah. or you may not get promoted or, or people are going to look at your gender and not pay you as much as they pay some man. So, you know, unfortunately, schools do not prepare us for that. Yeah. And they need to because they need to prepare us on how we're going to function and navigate in society. Otherwise, we get out there thinking, hey, you know, I got straight A's. I did good. Now I'm ready to take on the world. I get out there and get slapped in the face. <laughs> That's funny. Like, well, life, it's not life, even funny, but just true. <laughs> life has something totally planned for you. I mean, school can be a vacuum. And, you know, I, I graduated with a master's. Like, this is why, like, when I finished my undergraduate degree, like, my plan was to work for five years before I get a master's. Like, I usually discourage a lot of people who, that just go from an undergraduate straight to a master's or do, like, a what they call, I think it's a, a, a combined degree or something, like accelerated mm-hmm. master's that's straight from undergrad, you go into a master's and you know, things like that. I'm like, look, you need to go out there. Like at the very least, if you want to do that, do that in a different school or something. So at least you go somewhere else for your right. master's. Like don't just do that because the world is like, it's not a school can trick you into like operating in the vacuum. You do all these things and you're within the four walls of a school, you go to classes, maybe you participate in sports, you have friends, like you said, you have somewhat of an equal opportunity, although not all the time, but when you come out into the world, it's a much larger playing field. It's not like your school that has 5,000 people. This is millions of people. And sometimes it's easy to get lost and not even know where to start because you weren't prepared for that. You're just operating based off of school, maybe if you had a podcast, when it's not your podcast, were really popular in school, and then you come out of school, and then your podcast is like no one is listening because it's like there are millions of podcasts out there, right, and exactly. now you have to compete. So you go from being a big fish in a small pond mm-hmm. to being a small fish in a big pond. And most schools, like on the average, besides except you know schools like I guess like Harvard and things, it's always like one person out of every graduating class that ends up like becoming. Whatever your measure of success is, whether that is, uh, you know, let, let's just say one measure of success, let's say popularity of, of fame or achieve something. It's like on the average, I've always like noticed it, that, oh, this person was in class of 79, that person class of 78, that person class of 77. They each have something, but what happened to their other 200 and something classmates who graduated with them in the same year? Of course, you have universities like Harvard, you know, where you have people who went to school together, I guess that's the exception, but most times, sometimes you don't have schools that have three different graduating classes, like, no one of notes in quotes, like, comes out of that or something, it's just that maybe it still boils down to people not being prepared for the real world in a sense, or maybe not just having the opportunity one or the other, but, but yeah, we're just, you know, talking, we, we don't really have a script for this episode per se. I came here to visit Daryl and you know get it, get his thoughts on a couple of things. We've talked for like an hour and a half before we you know, open the mic to keep recording. 
I know I asked you this the last time, but what do you what do you hope your legacy would be? Uh, like, what do you hope uh, like your grandkids can your great grandkids can look back like a hundred years from now and say, oh yeah, Darius did this. What what do you hope to be remembered for? Well, <laughs> I've not thought that far ahead yet because uh, I don't plan on going anywhere too soon. Oh, you, you better but, not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I would hope that people would uh, take that example um, of what of what I'm trying to do and some of the things that I've done, and and realize that the key to success in this world is not only what you know, but how you treat others with what you know, and how you navigate through society. Because everybody has a role in our society. Facts. And um, it's good to have differences of opinion. You know, even even though some may be contrary to what you may believe. It's good because when you have that kind of thing going on, uh, I mean, it's not good if somebody is out murdering somebody else or whatever like that. True. But it's good to have a difference of opinion because it causes you to think and come up with other solutions not just be like monolithic or something. You, you know, you need, you need these challenges in your life in order for you to grow. And as you pointed out, you know, when you get your undergrad, your, your graduate degree, your, your, or the postgrad, your doctorate, whatever, all at the same school, you know, you haven't gotten that, that those, those different challenges mm-hmm. by going to these different schools. And so, you know, if you, I, I, I know students who have uh, gone to college with me and graduated with me as you know as teachers or whatever, and they work right there in the same college that we graduated. From. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So you know it's like a built-in thing. And they uh, work there long term. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, the teachers know them. Wow. So they get hired, you know, and and they don't have the the benefit or experience of other places. Got it. So you know, I mean, it's a good thing in the sense that they don't have to look for a job, mm-hmm. you know, and all that kind of thing. You know, they're they're already set. Uh, and then, of course, their kids, you know, get a discount on tuition when they go to college because oh. their parents or teachers there now, right? Glad to see. Um, so yeah, it, it's you know, on that side it's a good thing, but on the on the other side, they lack the knowledge of of other things in the world that are going on, other challenges, and other uh, pedagogies and other ways of learning, because it, they've been so monolithic here yeah. in this in this school. So back to your question. I'd like uh, you know my future generations to uh, to realize you know that my my successes ha- uh, have come through traveling and meeting many different people uh, and being able to apply that you know over thirty years uh, all the travel that I did as a child uh, and as a musician is now being applied uh, in my work. With um, with uh, white supremacists and extremists, but there should be a way to shortcut that, and there is. I mean, we, you know, when I was a kid growing up, if I wanted to learn about somebody from uh, Nigeria, for example, um, now fortunately my parents had uh, had had encyclopedias, so I just go downstairs to the to the library in the house and pull up an encyclopedia and look at Nigeria. But for kids who who may not have had encyclopedias, they had to get up, go out to the library, 
mm-hmm. and sit in the library all day and go through, you know, it had to do a, do a report on the country of Nigeria. Yeah, it had to pull the encyclopedia, look at Nigeria, find some books on Nigeria and write stuff out. Today, you don't even have to leave your house. You know, you just get on Google or the internet and learn everything you want to learn about Nigeria. It doesn't give you the experience, but it gives you the knowledge and things like that. You can write your paper, you know. And so by the time, you know, as you put it, my great-grandchildren come around, I mean, the internet should be practically perfect by then, I would think. (laughs) Most definitely. (laughs) And, And so... You know, they don't have to do all the travel that I did, or or maybe by then travel will be normal. You know, they you know they might be um, you know having having breakfast in uh, in the U.S. and having lunch in Brazil and maybe dinner in Europe. You know, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that's not that far off in the future. You know, we're we're always uh, coming up with new technology and how fast things can be transmitted and uh, and gained, and, and we you know we are. Americans are not very quick to do long distance travel. You know, we, we pretty much stay in this country and uh, when we go on vacation, we go to the closest beach to our house. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, you're, if you're in uh, Maryland, you go to Ocean City. If you're in uh, New York, you go to the uh, New Jersey shore. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in the Carolinas, you got your own shore. Uh, or if you're, you know, Say in Ohio, you might go to Florida, Daytona Beach, or Fort Lauderdale, whatever. California, you go to the beaches. But um, only 50% of Americans have passports. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europeans, they travel all the time. You know, they go from country to country and, and take these long vacations. And that's why they're so knowledgeable about other countries. And, that, and we need some of that in this country. We need to get out of our little our little bubble and a little comfort zone. Even within the country, like a lot of people grow up in, you know, one state, I end up getting married and work and do everything in that state. Yeah, or that city even. Some of them don't even get out of that city, you know? Um, I was on a tour with uh, with the legendary blues band um, way back when, and uh, we had, the legendary blues band was was the former band of uh, Muddy Waters, the father of... um, Chicago blues. He came from Mississippi, went to Chicago, and plugged in his his uh, instruments. And, and there he had electric blues was formed. Anyway, uh, I was on tour back in the '80s with this particular band called the Legendary Blues Band, and we had a gig in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, for two nights. Mm-hmm. So we did it the first night, and then during the day, the next day, we had nothing to do until that evening. We had all day long to do nothing. So someone figured out, uh, one of the band guys, that the Grand Canyon wasn't too far away. Mm-hmm. And so we said, hey, you know, let's, let's go to the Grand Canyon. Take a look at it. I'd never seen it before. So we went to the Grand Canyon. And um, I remember the drummer, he's from Chicago, just like me. He gets out of the van. We were all out. He's one. He's sniffing the air. He goes, you know. What what does that smell? It smells good, but what is it? All it was was fresh air. That's all all it was. It had been that long. Oh my God. You know, I mean, you know, we we live in Chicago. Chicago, You you got a lot of smog and other stuff. He he forgot what fresh air smelled like. Oh my God. You know, so you know, we we need to get out of our 
out of our bubbles. Yeah. And, you know, you had mentioned um, uh, Egypt before. Mm. It's like that. You know, I went to Egypt. I visited the, the pyramids. And, uh, and I went inside the pyramids. I went inside the Sphinx and all that. And you rode a camel across the sand to the pyramids. You had a guide and he took you up. And I remember those steps in there. Uh, they were like straight up. I mean, straight up. You know, if you turn around and look backwards, you'd probably fall back down. I mean, they were steep and straight up. And to this day, you know, we don't know how those pyramids were constructed. You know, we have theories, but we don't know for sure. You know, somebody very intelligent came up with these ideas. And, and where would they get the tools and the ability to cut these stones so perfectly to form something that big, right? I saw. I saw with my own eyes King Tut in, in his tomb long be, while I was in Cairo, mm -hmm. long before uh, he toured the country. Because, you know, uh, back in the... King in Tut, the uh, well, yeah, talk about uh, what's the Tutankhamen, like King Tut? Yeah, yes, King, yeah, King Tut, uh, Tutankhamen, exactly. They he he King toured Tut. the country? Like, he, he, toured, he toured here. In museums? In yeah, in museums. Really? Uh, yeah, back that. in the, uh, I guess it was the... Uh, Late seventies or something. Oh, okay. He, he, he was down at the Smithsonian for a while and different parts of the country. You know, for, for the first time ever, because you know, if you wanted to see him before, you had to go to Egypt, to Cairo. Got it. And he was there in the museum. But um, so so long before he ever went on tour, I saw him in his original thing. I, I was there at the Nile River uh, and all that. Um, and you know, you know, we were talking about about acupuncture. And, um, and what we call over here uh, black magic and stuff with our witch doctors. And ironically, of course, you know, they call it black magic because it has a negative connotation. <laughs> but uh, that's true. Got it. And um, anyway, the Egyptians, when they would embalm these bodies, these bodies were preserved. I mean, King Tut, years, you know, a uh... thousand years old or something, you know? And not, you know, he's still preserved. And we still do not know how to recreate the, 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 those embalming techniques mm. that will last that long. Because, you know, when we go to the funeral home today, when you die, yeah, they embalm you and they do this and they do that, put in formaldehyde, all that, and then they bury you. But guess what? You know, if you were to resume one of those bodies after 25 years or something, you're not going to find them looking like they did when you embalmed them. True. We still don't know how they did that. True, true, true. I mean, the continuous quest for education, uh, continuous and never-ending improvement, I've forgotten what the Japanese call it. It's like the quest for excellence, like continuing to learn, like being curious, being a student of life. Maybe that's what life is all about. I don't know. Uh, I don't have the answers, but it's you know certainly something that's exploring. And I'm like a baby in this, you know, I'm not like the expert on anything, but I like to contribute to a conversation. I like to be able to know something I haven't known before and, you know, kind of like use that to pass as a lesson, to pass information, you know, to other people, or just maybe just to learn something from that. You know, one thing I admire about you, Daryl, is like, your, and maybe this is stems from your dad being in the service, like, the way you network with people, like you have people in the music world, people in the speaking world, you know, people in other places, like the way you just keep in touch and the way you like 
use those relationships and it's like it's kind of like a skill <laughs> it's, it's like a, a talent per se it's like not everyone can do that like especially people who don't think like you who don't look like you who don't act the way you do who are not where you're from you still have those people in your networks and for years like we're sitting here in your apartment and i'm seeing pictures that are like 20 30 40 years old and i'm sure you kept in touch with most of these people till the day they died like, sure. Uh, how do you like how I try my best to be a good networker, but do you like have any tips? Do you, you try you told told me about something about starting for from a common place where both of you agree on or a uh, similarity and maybe build from there. But I keep cracking my brain on how do I like talk to people who are not like me and maintain that relationship for like a long time and maybe even use that relationship to not use it to my advantage, but use, you know, use the fact that we're friends to kind of like learn something that will better my own life. Well, some of them, you know, will be lifelong friends. And then there are others who are just more or less passing through mm-hmm. your life. But they, but, but in that short time that they pass through your life, you got something from them. Got it. And, and they have moved on to touch other lives. Um, I get I get email I got an email the other day, and this happens quite often. Um, somebody uh, heard me speak in, in, in their junior high school or their middle school, and now they're an adult at a company, you know, and they want me to come talk to their employees. Employees, you know, or I've gone to a college or university to speak, and some kid will come running up to me, say, "Hey, you spoke at my middle school, you know, in in, in Maryland." Or whatever. I'm 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 out in South Dakota at, at some university, and and tell me I spoke to their middle school, and and they and, and they told their activities of people about me. They remembered me from middle school. I thought the the message resonated with them. Mm-hmm. All those years later, they wanted me to come to their college and speak. You know, uh, those are people you know that I really haven't kept in contact with. They just reached out, and one of them just emailed me the other day like that, um, which you know, is, is very touching to me. So those are people that I've passed through their lives, Got it. you know, and now they get, you know, they're older, they have families and they're teaching their kids the same thing they learned from me. Uh, for me, it's the same thing. People have passed through my life and left little, little tidbits of information for me. But then there are those who, who, you know, who you do stay in contact with, you know, on a regular basis, maybe not every day, but if you talk to them, you know, maybe every, every other week or every month, or, you know, whatever, you're, you're in regular contact with them throughout the years. Um, you know, fr- friends are something that we all need, and, and it's, our, it's our support system. Right. It validates uh, who we are and, and how we get along with people. And when we maintain those friendships, it speaks loudly. But somebody who doesn't have any friends or has alienated their friends or, you know, does does not make friends very easily when they go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that usually, regardless of how smart they may be, those are the ones who usually uh, don't get ahead in, in their lives because it's like an ecosystem. We all have to rely on each other as checks and balances. Um, people refer me to other people. I refer people to other people, things like that. So we take care of one another, and and the friends become... Our, our extended family. And that's why it's important 
to have these networks, in my opinion. And, you know, somebody's sick, we're there for them. If we're sick, they're there for us. That makes sense. That makes sense. I like that knowledge of, you know, people not necessarily going with you for the long haul, but in that brief moment they're there in your life, you kind of, like, you know, uh, learn from them what you can, and that kind of, like, stays with you, you know, for a long time. I'll give you an example. Uh, I just had a very short encounter. I was on a show um, with a bunch of people from the from the 50s and 60s, musical artists. This is a long time ago. Uh, I had just graduated college or something. Okay. And I did this show. And uh, Ted Ross was a big time actor. He played in the original production of uh, The Wiz with uh, Diana Ross and all that. And he played the, the lion or something. Okay. Anyway, um, he was uh, uh, the MC on this show. And um, I was backstage uh, you know, before the show started and stuff. And um, we were just getting something, something to eat in the, in, the, in the green room. It was like a buffet laid out. And I happened to be in line next to him, and we just tried it. And he asked me what my name was. So I said, you know, it's Daryl Davis, blah, blah, blah. Hey, you know, it's good to meet you. Shook my hand. And, um, you know, are, are you, you know, who, who are you performing with or whatever? I told him, and that was pretty much it. He went and sat with his friends at his table, and I went to my table and sat with people I was working with. And that was it. You know, um, I, uh, I didn't see him anymore. I mean, I saw him on stage doing his work, but I didn't talk to him anymore until after the show was over. Okay. You know, we're all at the after party or whatever. And here, here's this man. He's a celebrity. Mm-hmm. I, I was a nobody. You know, I was just a backup musician for, some, for, for one of the stars that was uh, performing. I played piano. That's all I did. Okay. It wasn't like I was being featured myself. Like today, I have my own band. Um, I was just a side man back then. And um, at the after party, um, I ran into him, and I said, hey, man, uh, good job. And um, he goes, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Because all he did was MC. And he said, I like all the stuff that you did, too. And I said, I said, you, I said oh, come on. You know, you weren't watching me. He goes, yeah, I was. I, I, and I said, you don't even remember my name. He goes, Daryl Davis. Oh, wow. And yeah. I was like totally in awe, in awe. Mm-hmm. Just in, in those 45 seconds of conversation, this man meets a lot of people. Yeah, and he was an MC. Yeah. And, and he's there to MC celebrities, not side musicians. Yeah. You know, I'm just a, you know, somebody in the, in the background scene. Yeah. Um, and he remembered my name. I was very, very impressed with that. And that taught me something because when when I when I began coming into my own, you know, from being a side man into being a front man, yeah. you know, with Daryl Davis being featured, uh, I would meet people in my audience, especially in nightclubs, where you know, you're close up or whatever, and you talk to them on the break or sign somebody's autograph. Um, yeah, I would ask people their name, and I have a pretty good memory, and I would make it a point to memorize people's names, you know, and then I would see them again. When they come back and see me, I might play there in the same club two months later. Got it. Something like that. And they would come because they liked what I did. And I would say, hey, Mary, how are you doing? Or, hey, hey, John, what's, what's wow. happening, man? You know, yeah, how's your kid doing in college or whatever? They're like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> how did you know me? How did you, you know, they, 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 they knew we'd seen each other before. Yeah. But they were, they were impressed that, were that, I, that I took the time to remember their name or who they were. And that bonded us. And then they became lifelong fans and friends. And then they tell all their friends, hey, you know, I know this guy, Daryl Davis. 
you know Daryl Davis? Well, yeah, you know, you know, I know. You know, come, come on, come, come see him with me. And I said, you know, the crowd is growing. Got it. And so, just that little thing that I learned from Ted Ross was very, very important. And guess what? I've never seen him again live in person. Wow. Now, he's still alive. You know, yeah. he's still doing what he's doing. But just in that small encounter, he made an impression upon me. That's almost like the Haile Selassie, because you talked about meeting him, yeah. and he had like a photographic memory. He had a photographic memory. Uh, I met him, um, I want to say around... And this is Haile Selassie, the... The former, emperor, former uh, emperor, emperor of Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Yeah. yeah, I met him around maybe 1964, uh, 65. Mm-hmm. I was just a kid. And um, around 19... 70, 69 or 70, uh, he came to um, Conakry, Guinea, to visit with the president there at the uh, airport. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, we all went out to the airport, Secretary and uh, my parents and different embassy people uh, to, to welcome him. And I just went along for the ride, you know? And I was standing off, uh, uh, you know, there's this big veranda deck. And he came off the plane, came up there, and all the dignitaries, except the Touré and everybody, were over on this side mm-hmm. with him. And I was standing by myself against the rail. And he, he saw me, and he walked over. Wow. And, he, and he remembered me having met me years ago in wow. Ethiopia. And I was like, whoa. You know, that was very impressive. Not, not everybody has a photographic memory. Yeah, that was a president that he meets people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. A celebrity exactly. meets people. That yeah. <laughs> president probably meets people. And Daryl, thank you so much, man, for inviting me to your home. Uh, thank you for granting me an audience in these few days I've been here in D.C. Um, well, I hope you'll come back. Oh, most definitely. Like, I, I look forward to, uh, uh, well, I don't know, like Denver, uh, Colorado or Denver has been good for my mental health. It's been good. I, I always joke that when I moved to Colorado, I felt my life expectancy go up. But, you know, uh, professionally speaking, I might make my way back to the East Coast, if not D.C., somewhere on the East Pennsylvania. How are you yeah. doing with, uh, with your breathing out there? It takes a little while to get used to it. Oh, it takes a while to get used to trust me. Okay. Yeah. Pause it for a second. Yeah, pause it. I'll be right back. A few seconds. Yeah, breathing in Colorado is, uh, <laughs> it takes a little getting used to. I know you've been there to play several times. Yeah, I remember... Um... You know the uh, the vehicle, the tour, the tour uh, vehicle that uh, that we had. Uh, whenever we get to Colorado, uh, we had to put in extra high octane gas yep. to the oxygen, and the carburetor was set for the you know the altitude of Chicago or whatever. Yeah, and I, I remember um, when Muddy Waters when he uh, would play there. Um, I didn't play with him there. I played with, with his band. I knew him, but I played with the band after he passed on. But I know in his contract, uh, he had to have an oxygen tank in the contract, you know, wherever yeah, he Colorado. played. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So he, was, he was an older guy, you know. Got it. And even me, I was young. I was the youngest member of the band at the time. I was like 28 years old. And uh, we were up there, and I went into the dressing room to change clothes uh, to, to, you know, to go do the show on stage. And I stood up suddenly. I put my pants on, I stood up suddenly, whoa, got dizzy and almost fell over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those things happen. I mean, I got a car in Colorado, and I haven't seen those high premiums before ever. 
because a lot of things can happen to a car. Like besides theft and fire, like you can have hill damage, you can go snow, you can have a lot of things. It can go off a cliff. Like, yeah. So like insurance, car insurance in Colorado, the premiums are a little steeper than all normal cities because you have the elements to deal with. Yeah. That. So I guess they factor all that. That was the first place after that now where we were. We were on the highway and we, we, were, in, we were touring in Colorado. Um, and I saw ball lightning. I'd never seen ball lightning before. Mm-hmm. And I saw it in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also saw um, hail the size of golf balls. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That, that's, that's typical. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, but it's, it's, it's a very cool place, uh, to be honest. And, uh, yeah, regardless of where I end up, like, uh, that my year in Colorado. Is there a reason why you chose Colorado? Uh, I got a job out there. Okay. Uh, so I was in D.C. for school. So maybe it was a girlfriend or something? Uh, yeah, well, that too, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's besides the point. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, we'll see what happens. I uh, just want to appreciate you uh, once again for giving me the opportunity to record you. And, you know, I look forward to, you know, more and more uh, collaborations. In this oh, I appreciate that. I do too. Particularly on the podcast side. But, yeah. Great. All right, so you guys, that's been Daryl Davis. This is not an official episode. I'll probably post this as like a bonus, just a follow-up conversation to the episode we had a couple of weeks ago with Daryl. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. Uh, reach out to us on social media. It's Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Culture Class Pod on Twitter. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. And you can also reach Daryl. I think it's real Daryl Davis. Uh, everywhere on social media and send him an email also it's daryl at daryldavis.com let's go d-a-r-o-y-l got it all right guys be well <laughs>